Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about walking to school uphill both ways. I'm Dave Ramsey. <laughs> and I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going this week, Joe? Well, Dave, back in my day. <laughs> um, it's pretty good. Yeah. How about you? Frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> we'll, we'll come. We'll circle back to that. I think yeah. I know where the frustration lies. But mm-hmm. let's uh, let's talk about retrospective timelines. Less frustrating things, maybe. Kinda. Yeah. Um, it's ready. The iOS 14 version is done. Sweet. I was pretty much done with it last episode, but I wanted to do a widget for the new home screen widget system. And I did literally the barest minimalist implementation of like the whole new widget system comes with like multiple sizes and you can make them configurable and do all kinds of stuff. Like, nope, you're getting one size that does one query and shows you one record. Ta-da. And <laughs> like it's basically like just, it. Yeah. It's basically just just enough to have something there. And it replaces the current widget from the today widget uh, app target. So I'll, I'll probably add other stuff later. Right now I'm supporting the middle size which is basically a rectangle that takes up the space of like eight app icons. Um, and what it does is the same query as the on this day report in the app. So it just finds for events or dates specifically that happened on the same day of the year in previous or future years or technically today as well. Mm-hmm. And it just, it sorts those uh in descending order by date and the widget just shows you the latest one and if there's more than one it just has a little caption at the bottom says you know plus one more plus five more things like that and mm-hmm. you tap on that and it opens the app i was going to do deep linking to go straight to the one day thing but i just frankly there was more interesting things to work on than deep linking so <laughs> So yeah, I've still got the only other things I have to do are kind of non-technical. So taking new screenshots and I'm waiting on that for basically the GM to see if any other things kind of change with the way the Swift UI is rendering. There's one tiny weird bug on the UI right now, which is on certain iPhones, the the new inset group section corners aren't rounding on the timeline screen and i don't know why but it just popped up in the last beta so hopefully it would be fixed in the next beta or gm build so i'm not even going to spend any time troubleshooting it it's just something i noticed okay and uh yeah there was also a weird animation issue that came up around beta 5 so we're on beta 6 now and beta 5 was a couple weeks ago and all of a sudden um, segueing or transitioning, navigating from one from the timeline list to a list of events for a timeline, it got slow and laggy, and the animations were really, really choppy. So the I don't know, I don't, I have no idea what happened. It's something related to Swift UI. A bunch of other people on Twitter have been talking about the same thing. I fixed it by just putting an animation modifier and passing in nil. So there is no animation. So it performs the 
kind of the side to side view animation, but none, none of the content on the screen is animating into existence when you navigate. So it's much more similar to like when we do a navigation animation in FileMaker Go from one scene to another. The, the scene animates onto the screen, but none of the content does, which is kind of what I wanted in the first place. So yeah, that's kind of retrospective timelines. I, I might do a new app icon. I might not. I don't know. Depends <laughs> how lazy I am. It's ready enough. Um, it's to the point now where once I get this version out the door, the next stuff I want to play with is the visual timeline stuff. And I keep going back and forth in my head of like doing this in Swift UI or just bypassing the 2D interface entirely and going straight to AR slash 3D versions of the visual timelines. And I've had some interesting ideas of how to handle that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. We'll see. The reason why I haven't spent too much more time on retrospective timelines is because all I want to do all of the time is WebXR <laughs> stuff. Like that's it. It's way more interesting. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm glad I made the app and I'm going to keep supporting it, but I'm not necessarily going to throw tons of my free time into it when this WebXR stuff just seems to have a much bigger potential payoff. Um, in terms of my consulting business, like I don't, I don't have any necessarily product ideas in the WebXR space, but in terms of getting consulting projects, you know, I think we talked about this offline, but I could also pursue that route with iOS development, but I don't want to, like, I just don't want to do that kind of work as a consultant because there are so many things that are out of my control with the way that Apple does things. Mm -hmm. It just dealing with Swift UI last year and just tons of bugs with no communication from Apple, no response from anything. And then also just the, the entire app store approach of like, I can make you an app. I can't guarantee you that I can ship your app. Like, yeah. I just, I'm not interested in doing consulting in that kind of world where on the website, there are still dependencies like A-Frame still has to be good. 3GS still has to be good but no one can stop me from publishing anything. And if there are bugs in A-Frame, it may take some doing, but I could probably figure out how to fix them. Right. Um, whereas if there's a bug in Swift UI, I just have to hope that Apple fixes it because they don't read my bug reports or anybody else's from what I can tell. So yeah, WebXR, a-Frame, 3JS, whatever you want to call it. Um, I spent a little time looking into Babylon JS as well, which is kind of an alternative to 3JS. So in terminology, A-Frame is what I've been working with so far. It's built on top of 3JS, which is a 3D, a 3D interface, or is it a framework for making 3D apps on the web? It is I guess technically you could say it's built on OpenGL, but that's not even technically correct, or WebGL. It it offers a WebGL renderer as one of the options, but you can also sub in other renderers as well. So it's kind of confusing to what, what the heck it is. Babylon.js is a competing framework and it looks interesting in a lot of ways. I first heard about it during uh, Microsoft's conference last spring because um, Microsoft is using it heavily with HoloLens. And 
they've got tutorials on how to make stuff in 3JS for HoloLens and mixed reality. So I, I took a look at it. All I've done so far is basically the the hello world scenes of like, you know, making an HTML file, add the script, the uh, HTML placeholders, and then a script tag and start making it, you know, a basic scene and some objects. And I think I'm just going to stick with the 3JS stuff, but I probably, I want to learn enough about Babylon JS to at least have it as an available option. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't necessarily want to limit myself to a specific technology. I want to be good at making these types of things that I want to make. But the reading through the Babylon JS documentation was just like this is it's not bad. Like the information here is good, but it's written in this tone that's hard to describe, but I don't think I like whoever wrote this. <laughs> And I think it's because it's the way that I would write something like this. I'm like, I like me just fine. But if I wasn't me, I don't think I would like me. If that makes any sense. <laughs> you're, you're pretty likable, Joe. I, I don't know. I don't think I would be my friend if I wasn't me. <laughs> but, and that's, that's kind of what I felt like reading this documentation. Like, I don't think I like this person. <laughs> so, yeah, it was kind of brutal. Um, now I got to read the Babylon JS documentation. <laughs> yeah. So I've been, you know, most of the work I've done so far has been in a frame and in a frame at any time you can kind of jump out into three JS to do more advanced things. And I've only really learned bits and pieces of three JS by doing that, by doing those small leaps outside of a frame. So I mentioned last episode kind of getting my development environment set up where I've got basically a pipeline where I can develop in a project in VS Code and I'm working in a Nuxt project. So I've got all of the tools of view available to me with some kind of nice streamlined abstractions in Nuxt. Um, my favorite of which is never having to make my own router links. I can just put a view in the views folder and it gets a router link, which is kind of handy when I'm just adding a bunch of like, you know, single hierarchy or single level hierarchy of pages. So I've been working on that and I've got, you know, half a dozen scenes there just trying different ideas. And I've joked around about this for years, probably on this podcast and on VR Hermits that one of these days I was going to make a project graveyard Mm-hmm. for all of the dead projects that I've started and abandoned. So that's what I'm working on. <laughs> I actually started making a virtual reality project graveyard in about the nerdiest way you can imagine. So it's pretty sparse right now, but I'll, I'll drop a link in the show notes. But it is basically a scene. I don't really have very good controller input. It works well with an Oculus Quest or with a... WASD controls on a desktop browser, but it doesn't really work with anything else at this point. Um, but basically, it's just a kind of a static environment where it, you know it's a very dark scene. And I found a tombstone in Google Blocks, and I'm using that for now. And then I basically made I took the 3D model and pulled it in, made a view component of it, and gave it some properties for like a description, like a name description and a 
you know, a date or year caption. And then for each one of the events or each one of the projects that I have on my list, I just create one of those and then position it somewhere. So over the course of a couple of days, I kind of ended up making a little FileMaker database to hold a list of all my projects. So the name and the description and the caption. And then I also added a position property to that and then did a JSON export of that database. Right now I'm just copying it back and forth, but I could hook this up with an API and I probably will. But right now I just make the change to the database and export it as JSON and copy it into a place in the store. So now when you load the graveyard, there is a component that just loops over the products array or the projects array and creates a gravestone in the <laughs> position defined in them. So it's, yeah, it's it's pretty bad. It's, you know, it's kind of awesome now. What, much easier for you to move grave sites now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I kind of have it separated into, you know, left and right or east and west where there's kind of an aisle down the middle um, leading towards a mausoleum in the back, which is basically just has a low poly house as a placeholder for now. And then <laughs> the... Uh... <laughs> please yeah, please so proceed. That That's my mausoleum to uh, VR developer hubris, but we'll come back to that someday. <laughs> in so VR. On the, yeah. Yeah. So, um, and I'm just using the... Um, negative and positive values along the, I guess it's the x axis in this coordinate system, to separate those two. So, so it, I don't know. It's it's a silly, stupid thing that doesn't need to exist, but it's actually forcing me to learn a whole bunch of stuff about this mm -hmm. type of development along the way of like how to position all this stuff dynamically. Um, you know, I've got a whole Vuex store set up for my gravestones which is like you know just working through this to-do list has been pretty ridiculous like at one point i had a it's still on my to-do list but i had a whole kind of sub list of like how to pay respects <laughs> like you know you walk up to a gravestone you drop a flower on it and then it shows you more of a description maybe plays an audio uh, <laughs> description of, of, the, of the project or shows a youtube video or something um yeah, it's I. I'm kind of going back and forth between writing my own stuff and using stuff. So a lot of it right now, just to get up and working, I'm using other stuff. So I'm using yeah. an environment import, which is a, a set of three uh, A-frame components called the environment component that somebody made, and you can define the sky and the fog and the ground and some gradients and you know, the type of ground, whether it's mountainous or flat or spiky or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I'm using that for now. I'm also using the A-Frame Extras component to do basic controller input so I can move around the scene. But I need to, or want to start kind of deprecating those dependencies and using some of my own stuff. So learning how to write the entire uh, controller interface stuff. So the browser can detect that you've got motion controllers paired or a game controller and being able to write all the key mappings myself is something I want to do. But for right now, I'm just using the other stuff um, to really focus on the logic of the graveyard, if that makes sense. But yeah, I have 
I've just had idea after idea of stuff I want to build with this. And it's just kind of funny that I feel like I'm going to end up abandoning this project at some point. So the first gravestone I added was a grave marker for the project graveyard itself. But then right did the you entrance. hide it? No, it's right there at the entrance. Okay. With just question, question marks. It's like 2020 oh. dash question mark. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's pretty ridiculous. It'll be really amusing if the final date on that ends up being like 2042 because yeah. you retired or something. Yeah. So, there's, you know, the other stuff I want to do with it, um, I need to get text looking better in VR. It looks great on the browser. If you just walk up to a gravestone, the text looks fantastic. But in VR, it looks a little fuzzy. So I need to kind of fix that. I think that has something to do with the way I'm scaling things. And I'm using... A-Frame has really minimal support for text rendering on 3D objects. There are some alternatives for more complex layouts. You can kind of render HTML onto the surface of a model as a texture but that is in no way interactable so i can't make like user interfaces that way mm -hmm. and i wasn't really planning on it um but in this case i want to be able to you know have the user walk up to a gravestone register a collision and if you're inside the bounding box of the grave if you push a button on the controller to spawn a flower and drop it on the grave and listen to an event or things like that um really goofy stuff yeah someday listeners of the podcast will be able to go pay their respects to my dead projects <laughs> and, uh, some of the first grave markers i put there were the uh, massively unqualified developers podcast and the vr hermits podcast so those are in there <laughs> i i'm i'm especially tickled by the concept of the graveyard as the learning project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty messed up. So yeah, just poking through that. I've also been going through this, um, Udemy course for a frame development. I bought it last winter and been going through a couple lessons of that each day and just trying to soak up everything I can. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of where I am with WebXR developments. I'll probably keep poking around with Babylon JS as well and then learning more about 3JS. But I think for the most part, most of what I want to do can be done in A-Frame. And then, yeah, I got, a, I got a big list of things I need to learn. And I mean, kind of reshuffling that list of like what order to do. Next up is the controller input stuff. And then making my own environments so swapping out the environment stuff but i also want to plug in uh, api to start pulling content down from an api into the scene dynamically and then once that's up and running i can start doing using the data i'm pulling down along with the controller input to do basic interaction with the data to be able to you know register my respects into the database uh -huh. things like that um, I think at one point I had written the line, like, once respects have been properly registered, like, what is wrong with me? <laughs> yeah. I got to do crud operations for my graveyard, essentially. For the flowers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
So yeah, the other stuff, not really been working on, but uh, they're spending a lot of time in VR the last couple of weeks. I mean, mostly the last couple of months, but I think, you know, last winter I or fall, I tried to quit VR, which didn't last very long, maybe a month before I ended up getting a PSVR. And then right before we kind of went into quarantine in the US, I borrowed back the Oculus Quest that I sold to a friend and I still have that. And I think I would have gone completely insane by now without it. Like having it as just a place to get out of the apartment and go other places has been really crucial, but also having, you know, attending stuff in VR, attending social events and just being around strangers, it's really helpful. So, you know, physically speaking, it's helped me keep in shape by, you know, exercising with things like Beat Saber and Pistol Whip. And then mentally speaking, it's helping me keep sane by just continuing to be around people on a regular basis. And this week's social activity is Burning Man. And yes, that Burning Man. It's happening in VR this year. And a number of different apps, they're calling it the Burning Man Metaverse. Um, just a number of different places across, or the Burning Man Multiverse. A number of different uh, VR apps are just hosting different campsites. And I went to kind of an orientation meeting yesterday to talk about the 10 principles of Burning Man. And it was like the most disorganized thing I've ever been to, which just seems about right. Like that's kind of what I was expecting. And I haven't been back today, but I'll probably do that after work today. Just go check out <laughs> some different places and hang out with people. And uh, yeah, kind of continue my descent into madness, which is, you know, I don't know when that's going to end, but uh, for the time being, it's just stay here, program stuff, go in VR, program some more stuff in VR, and then hang out in VR all day. So yeah, I've also been working on FM comparison. Um, we had some changes that needed to be made to the navigation a little bit. And they were kind of coming out of a need to do more of a full screen view for things like the relationship graph. Um, but combining the need for full screen view with the relationship graph with also the need for people with smaller devices to be able to hide the sidebar when necessary, we ended up kind of coming up with this system of dynamically showing and hiding the category sidebar on the side of the app so that you can have more room for the item list and the detail cards mm -hmm. or the org views or the relationship graph or whatever you're showing in that main content region. So I spent some time redoing that. And that was kind of a, Dave and I had a long meeting talking through just dozens of possibilities and permutations of this. And there are so many dependencies of this. And it, it, this is one of those areas where like, Good design is hard. Mm -hmm. Like coming up with what looks like something that wasn't even designed, but just seems self-evident, that takes time. Like it really does. Um, I think I'm pretty happy with what we have now. It's not perfect, but it's good enough. There's a little button that you can click to toggle the sidebar on and off. And when it's 
hidden. We just have a drop down that shows you the same list of categories that the sidebar would show you. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's pretty good. It's good enough. I mean, you're interested to see what people think about it in the beta. We'll probably make some changes to it stylistically, but yeah, the other stuff, layout diffing. So Dave had uh, a feature for layouts. When you click on the layout category now, you basically get some metadata about the layout, but no real data on the layout objects. And in this one, we want to basically just include a button to navigate to another screen to show you all the layout objects because trying to cram them into the detail card won't do them justice when each of them needs their own independent detail card. <laughs> yeah. So it was interesting. Dave had his description of how he thought it could work. And then I went through and thought through some of that and decided maybe it should work a little bit differently data-wise. And it was an interesting process because I went through and developed, like Dave couldn't really do anything with the data until he had somewhere in the app to show it. And I couldn't really make anywhere for him to show the data without solving some of the basic logic <laughs> of where the data is gonna live. So I, I, I decided that what I had done was basically create the scaffolding for a feature that doesn't have a foundation yet. So the, the scaffolding is currently just like hanging in the air and uh, hopefully nobody turns gravity on until Dave lays the foundation with all the data. Well, one of the first things I have to add is the button that lets you see that stuff. Mm -hmm. So nobody's gonna run into it by accident. Yeah. So yeah, that's pretty much what I've been working on. There's also some stuff on relationship graph, but we'll come back to that when Dave gets to it. So what have you been working on? Um, not nearly as much as I would have liked to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the last two weeks have been a exercise in frustration. I, I really like making progress. Mm -hmm. And when I bump into a technical issue that just stops me dead in my tracks, <clears throat> it's really, really frustrating. Um, yeah. Whoever imposed it on you is a real jerk. You know, I I think it's self-imposed, but I, I'm not entirely sure I'm in control of it. <laughs> there's, <clears throat> there's too much of my identity as a programmer that's tied up in being a programmer. Mm. And so if I'm not writing good code, I'm not being a good person. Mm, I'm not yeah. being a good That's Dave. Rough. And <clears throat> I know that's junk. Mm -hmm. But knowing it and, and feeling it are two different things. Yeah, like I, when I'm making good progress, I'm very, very happy, happy. And all of that feeds into further productivity. You know, progress makes it hard to stop. Lack of progress makes it hard to start. Mm, yeah. Um, so the first bit of fun, uh, Windows Dark Mode. Um, Should be easy. Yeah. Shouldn't You're be hard. Most of it done. Yeah. But Microsoft supports it. Should be fine. Um, so last episode, I think I said I was about 87% of the way done. 
I've gotten that to about 95%. So, yay. The menus look proper. The menu items in those menus look proper. The problem is the borders around the menu items aren't changing color. Hmm. I wasn't even thinking about menus when we talked about this last time. I guess I was looking at the Mac window and I was really just thinking about the window Chrome itself. And I was, it wasn't until I was reading through your notes today. I'm like, oh yeah, menus are part of the window in uh-huh. Windows. And those, yeah, I did not even consider <laughs> that. So Microsoft has this cool tech called XAML. Uh, XAML. Mm-hmm. It's the Extensible Application Markup Language. And they use it for a lot of different things. And it's got some really cool stuff. But basically, you end up describing in XML what your layout looks like. So it's kind of sort of almost like building a web page. There's mm-hmm. just special nodes for all the different kinds of UI elements you want to use. But behind the scenes, it's tying into a whole stack of predefined XAML. So all the UI elements that you're used to seeing in a Windows window are actually defined in XAML itself. And you can override those. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, you can actually build your own custom UI elements using the same language, in theory. Haven't really gotten there yet. So where the whole problem comes in is there's no exposed color property for all the little colors on default UI elements. So I can add a menu and a bunch of menu items, but I can't really set the the color of those menu items programmatically. Hmm. Um, Because it's just, it's not exposed. It's not a, think of it as like a a private API. Mm -hmm. But you can create your own UI elements that look and act exactly like Microsoft's And in those, override or expose that color property. And the cool part is they actually provide you that source code. So you can actually click on a UI element and say, give me the XML for this item. And then take that, dump it into your source, and then override a couple of lines, and you're good. Kinda. So it's like two to three hundred lines of code to make it so that I can change the colors. The good news is I don't have to write most of that code. Microsoft writes it for me. But the bad news is it's a lot of stuff. And then, so, yeah, I'm effectively building my own UI element that looks and acts exactly like Microsoft's, except for where it doesn't. Mm-hmm. So the biggest problem that I've got is that the the columns break. So when you're looking at a drop-down menu, if you really look at it, a lot of the kind of data in a drop-down menu falls into columns. The leftmost column is kind of a space for a checkbox, just a little mm-hmm. gap over there. And then there's space for left adjusted menu text. And then the rightmost column is for like the keyboard shortcut. And what happens when I do the official process for making my own menu items that act like Microsoft's is all the column dividers basically disappear. They break down. 
I end up with the menu item text becomes centered rather than left adjusted. Mm. Um, everything's kind of flowing and jamming together. And in some cases, the menu kind of flows off screen. So if you hit the leftmost menu is the file menu. And if you hit that, some of the file menu items are a little long. And what you find is that they're actually running off the left-hand side of the window. But I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Like in theory, I'm using the same XML that they're using. This should work. They've got stuff further up the hierarchy that's applying other styles to it. Some kind of layout structure. I'm, I'm missing something somewhere. So literally what happens is when you're in dark mode and in windows, you hit the window or the, the menu drop down and the panel behind the menu items is still basically a light gray mm-hmm. into which are inset dark gray boxes with light gray text in them. It just looks a little janky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I can't I can't really call it done when it looks like that. Remember back in the day when I offered to do all the menus in the UI? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Oh yeah, I've been been totally regretting that. <laughs> totally. For like four weeks now, Joe. Seriously. It's, it's, we could we could still do it. It's not that big of a change. Yeah, I mean even part of my brain was going, maybe we'll just do it for Windows. I'm like, no, that's and I keep running over the same stuff and this is the crap that fills my brain when I'm not Mm -hmm. making progress on code yeah it does make like if we were going to do it it would make like it would be easy to do it for both UIs but it does make sense to do it for only Windows because Windows is where you typically see menus as part of the application Mm -hmm. window where we can't you don't really see that on the Mac in the same way well, are you not horrifyingly opposed to doing it just in Windows? No. I mean, we we, we okay. added a new navigation bar. We could basically make a variant of that for Windows. And on the app startup, say, if you're on Windows, add this one. If you're on Mac, add this one. And then the the Windows one could just have more content. Okay. And we'd probably double the height of it and just add a row of menus above that but yeah i think it's doable okay let's uh set a little calendar note or something to have a meeting to discuss that in more detail okay. um because it's it's just just barely ugly enough to like stop me from wanting to release it and call it a 1.0 mm-hmm. but just right on the edge but it, it just looks bad it looks yeah. it looks terrible. I'll see if I can get you a screenshot. Um, yeah, the last couple of versions of the dev copy you sent me have been Mac only, so yeah, I haven't got a chance to see this yet. Yep. Um, Which is it's kind of funny. We talked about this a couple weeks ago about Dave got auto updating work working, and we you know we even tested the auto updating feature using the auto updating feature, and it was really cool, and then. Now we've got people using that update system. <laughs> so he can't really release updates to me that way anymore. So it's like, oh, wait, now we're back to Dropbox links. We could set up with like two different feeds and stuff like that. But 
Yeah, or separate category that no one else can see unless they're in dev mode or something. Yeah. Um. So, I I really didn't want to end the day on a down note. This was like Friday at eight p.m. I didn't want to end the day on a down note for like the fifth time in a week, beating mm. my head against these windows. It's just yeah. so frustrating. But the big one that I knew that you'd been working on was layout diffing. And I'm like, I cannot make enough progress on that in the next hour and a half to make that feel like a victory. I want a bit of a win. And so I started poking at the relationship graph rendering for relationship graph diffing. And eight hours later, I clocked out. <laughs> Huge progress. Um, I'd been... So, so I don't have time to do layout diffing. So I'm going to spend eight hours on a new feature. I was not in any way planning on spending eight hours in it. It was mm -hmm. just, I was, I was, I was getting my, my sugar pellet. <laughs> like I was getting the response that I wanted from little stuff and just constant progress. And it's not that it was like long distance of progress, but lots of little progress is adding up. And it just felt so good after just a rough couple of weeks. Um, and it's great. Um, I'd been playing with something that was a, I can't remember the name of it, was a, a JavaScript graphical rendering system that's really designed for doing like making your own um, diagram management systems. Like if you wanted to give people the ability to build their own org charts in your application, this would let you mm -hmm. do it. And I thought that that would be probably be pretty good for drawing these relationships. And it just, it had a lot of overhead that was largely built around things like being able to edit the graph from that interface. I didn't need that. Yeah. So step one was dropping down to D3. And huge performance increase. Like it can render an arbitrarily large graph something close to instantaneously, which is yeah. good because we actually have to render two of them. Yeah, it's pretty fast. It's faster than loading the org view of the same data, which is just text. Yeah. Which is pretty impressive. Really fast. And it moves around really smoothly. You know, and, and this is the kind of thing that that's like, oh yeah, I want some more of this. Let me keep going. Um, so that's great. Got two of them side by side. They're rendering. I'm applying colors in good ways. That stuff's working. Zoom is a little funky. There's actually mm -hmm. a, a D3 function called Zoom that kind of controls moving a graph around and uh, like scaling it and such. So if you want to do like a big map or something like that. Um, and that's very smooth. The zooming is nice. It does have a UI like Google Maps. So you move it around by grabbing the graph like clicking and dragging on it to drag it someplace else mm -hmm. and the scroll wheel zooms in and out so basically just like google maps i 
prefer a different model where you would scroll to move the display around and then either zoom in and out button somewhere on the UI or some kind of key combo with scroll, like command scroll or shift scroll or something like that to zoom in and out. Mm -hmm. Um, It just, it feels a little more natural. Um, But I'm not, I'm not quite connecting all of the dots that I need. Like most stuff, most sample code that you see for D3, everybody does the entire thing in one gigantic function. There's a draw chart function and it draws everything which controls the entire UI and you don't kind of have to save stuff for later reference. And that's not how this code is structured. Um, I've got separate functions for building different kinds of UI. There's there's one for putting notes on the relationship graph, one for putting table occurrences on the relationship graph, and a separate one for drawing relationships, making the links between them. And that all works well, but overriding some of the functionality of Zoom is tough. Yeah, I think it's, I kind of, come. I don't know, I think it's good the way it is with zooming in and out with the trackpad or scroll wheel mainly because putting zoom or putting the scroll back to vertical scrolling only only takes care of one axis mm-hmm. you still have to grab to go side to side or you have to put a horizontal scroll bar to move side to side and it's just kind of annoying like it you're we're reproducing the annoying aspects of the relationship graph and file maker <laughs> don't necessarily need to um i think how it works now makes sense i think we just need some affordances in the ui to let users know how it works so maybe a little help icon or some buttons that could you know apply zooms at certain step levels things Mm -hmm. like that um maybe even a nudge buttons like pushing wasd to move over you know fixed increments rather Mm -hmm. than kind of big sweeping movements with the mouse um, things like that so i think we could kind of augment it a little bit like keep its keep the design of what it wants to do and how you interact with but just add some stuff to make it more evident to users how it works yeah i i along with that had a request for basically a like a zero 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 button Mm-hmm. that would go back to the upper left-hand corner at 100%. Yeah, definitely. Um, to just, okay, I'm kind of lost. <laughs> Get me back to where I wanted to be. Yeah. It, so essentially, like FileMaker, the relationship graph starts from the top left and you've got values going down and to the right. So we're basically in one quadrant of a four-quadrant 2d coordinate system with a z axis and in d3 there's no cap to that that we can scroll right off screen to the left where Mm -hmm. in filemaker the the left doesn't exist you only go right like a video game so yeah Yeah. we need a way to recenter people if they get messed up one of the other reasons i removed the scroll bars from the window now is because it was possible for me to load the view scroll out a little bit by zooming or i guess zoom out a little bit and then grab the scroll wheel 
and basically see the entire relationship graph repeat itself several times as I'm scrolling down to the bottom of the layout. I'm like, yep, this is super broken. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking the scroll wheel off of here. You or scroll bar. You shouldn't see that anymore. I think I'm cleaning those up. Um, and you got rid of the scroll bar anyway, so not a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but we basically made a a really heavy object pooling system for the entire relationship graph. <laughs> yeah. I also added a bounding box. Mm-hmm. So there's just one big rectangle that draws at the beginning that, that shows you where the edges are. So you can know that I don't have to scroll any further, right? There's nothing over there. Yeah. Um, we might want to do something weird color wise to make that more obvious but right now it's just a one pixel black box um, but we could do something like you know change the background color or something like that to make the rest of that look like dead space you could do it like an old style map and just draw clouds around the edge <laughs> little little dragons and uh, octopi mm-hmm. giant squid here there be monsters yep <laughs> Which is wrong because in the FileMaker relationship graph, all the monsters are on the inside of the chart. That's true. Which was now the monsters, the monsters on the other side of the keyboard. <laughs> Which was technically also true with the sailors back in that era, but the monsters were in the boat all along. Um, so, yeah. So it sounds like we're gonna poke at the relationship graph a little more. Get some buttons on the interface. Probably replace the Windows menu system with something rendered in HTML that can have the right freaking colors. Yeah. So this entire feature, I've called it. I've called it the rhetorical feature because Dave keeps posting stuff for me to do and then doing it himself. <laughs> like, like what? Pretty much the entire thing. Oh, the relationship graph. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily specifically defined as you should do it, even though it's in the system where we tell you to do things. Yeah, it was more a this is what the feature needs to do. But I was pretty sure 90 percent of the relationship graph was going to end up being me anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, now that it's here, if you went through that code and internalized the whole batch and how it works. I don't think any of it's beyond you and you could do five more like it. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was some weird stuff trying to get all of that working properly, especially relationships. Yeah, it's definitely a cool thing. I wonder like how well D3 works in various different browsers. Could you build something in D3 in a web viewer in FileMaker? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There are there already exist um, JavaScript-based charting libraries for FileMaker that run entirely in D3. Nice. Um, it does not require a super... Basically, it just has to have SVG support. As okay. long as the browser can render SVGs, all D3 is doing is giving you some functions that allow you to more easily structure a an SVG to build it okay. on the fly um, rather than having it pre-rendered. 
So like one of the weird ones is the styling stuff. So you saw in the code, it had things like, um, you know, uh, make this line thicker, a separate line to change the color, a separate line to change the stroke width, um, mm -hmm. you know, change the font styling, that kind of stuff. In an SVG, all of those things are combined in one giant style tag. Yeah. And so editing that style, building an SVG is kind of a pain in the butt. Well, you can do it. It's just a little more complicated than it needs to be. Whereas I can render a box and then say, okay, now, you know, like we do when we select something, change the border color of this box that already exists to this. Well, imagine trying to grab the style text, break it into separate chunks, replacing just the color of the outline, and then put it all back together and shove it back into the graph. You could do that, but it's nowhere near as easy as just going, hey, make the outline purple. So yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it's just, if you can render an SVG in the browser, you're good. Um... <clears throat> So yeah, uh, if we do that, then kind of those two things, then I shouldn't have any difficulty stepping off and getting into layout rendering, <laughs> which will take out one of the last two major things stopping us from release. Because mm -hmm. um, layout diffing and then getting the preferences and setting system put together. Yeah, I left that one for last until we get relationship graph and layout diffing done because I figured we might have preferences mm -hmm. that affect those features. So. Yeah. I said the same thing when somebody was asking about the relationship graph diffing and they're like, I could use some buttons that would kind of help me work with this UI. And I was like, okay, step one was figuring out what the UI looks like and how it acts. <laughs> the last mm -hmm. thing we'll do with that is add a couple of buttons to make it easier to work with. Yeah, when I presented the the relationship graph navigation to a couple of users in the office hours. Um, a couple of people were like, yeah, it's basically like Google maps and that's fine. And somebody else was like, I hate Google maps. <laughs> like nice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. I mean, it can be annoying when you have a, like, the behavior of Google Maps makes sense when you're looking at a full browser window. Yeah. But it is annoying when you are scrolling down a page and the map just snags your scroll <laughs> behavior and all of a sudden you slam to a halt and you're zooming way out to Australia or something. Yeah. Well, particularly now that we've got the lovely ability to hide the category sidebar, you can mm -hmm. basically get two big maps. And that's it. Um. So that also has some weird stuff because you can click in one of them and start dragging it and your mouse pointer actually passes out of the map that you're currently in mm -hmm. and you're over the other map but you're still dragging the first map because you never let go yeah and in some applications on particularly on windows you can it when you're doing a drag particularly with a trackball this is really handy you can drag off screen and come back on the other side of the screen and keep moving. The what? Yeah. I've seen this several times over the years. And it's like, that. hopefully we don't have that behavior, but that's definitely the thing that can happen. 
No, no, Joe. <laughs> I've never <clears throat> seen it on macOS, but I saw that in definitely in Blender and Maya, probably even on Real Engine on Windows. Okay. There's just something about how that 3D environment works when you're doing a regular click and drag. Well, make yourself a little note to test that on Windows. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So the other thing we might want to change about the relationship graph is just right now it's an even split between the two, mm -hmm. but I could see it being a lot of users wanting to focus on one or the other. So maybe we have technically the ability to resize these windows mm -hmm. and right now that feature has just been deactivated we may want to consider reactivating it for this screen in particular that could so that'll make the linking between the two interesting because we've got these two regions and if you click on a table occurrence on one side it will resize the other side to show you the matching table occurrence on the other side. Mm -hmm. And it puts it in the exact same position in the, in the larger region. Okay. So if you clicked on the thing that was centered on the left, the matching thing will be centered on the right. If that thing was in the upper left-hand corner, it will be in the upper left-hand corner of the other side. Mm -hmm. If the two sides are not the same, then I'm not actually using the same coordinate system. Yeah. To I would think do rather that. than trying to map the exact same positions in the two sides, just put the new object in the center of its viewport. Yeah, could be. Like I said, we we it it will have its own fun to it. Yeah. And we gotta this is, we'll have to tackle yeah. that. Yeah. This is one of those features that is a bottomless pit. Yes. I, we could spend the next three months making the relationship graph awesomer. Mm -hmm. um, and part of me wants to do that. <laughs> and the rest of me is going, you bloody idiot, cut it out. <laughs>